What's up, everybody, and welcome to Lights, Camera, Exploitation, your guide to exploitative cinema. This is your host with the motherfucking most, T.J. Bowser, and joining me is my doppelganger, king of banger from down under, Mr. Brody Kane. G'day, my mateys. And Mr. Slick Nick. How you going? Today is April 16th, 2021, and we got a doozy of an episode for you today. But first, it's time for your slice of life. Brody, how was your week? Not too bad, Mr. Bowser, not too bad at all. Um, flat out at work, yet again. Uh, it's kind of good. Makes the day go quick, obviously. Um, what made it even better this week is that I received a little parcel in the mail from the boss man himself, and it came with some delightful goodness. Like, I, I, I am still yet to watch watch him, um, and a lot of Dario Argento films from Arrow release. Um, Deep Red, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Tenembrae, Phenomena, and The Cat with Nine Tails. So, Mr. Bowser, I do thank you for that little gift. Uh, I can't wait to watch it. It's going to be going to be a bloody fun time. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Deep Red, actually. So yeah, that was that was on my must watch list. Um, I've just got to give a huge shout out to a Dean uh, Swinsco, like over at Dean Does Tattoos. You can find him on Instagram. He's been creating these flash art uh, pieces for me. They're uh, like tattoo designs, um, and they've just been fucking amazing. Like they're just so fucking it awesome. It is the and same he, artist he, as mine. It is, is it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Yeah, he does some really fucking nifty stuff. It's awesome. So, um, yeah, just a huge shout out to the, that man himself. But other than that, uh, nothing, nothing really much else. It's, yeah, what about you, Slick and Nick? Oh uh, well, my week's been pretty quiet, pretty slow. Um, I'm putting out a bunch of IT fires at work, basically, but uh, it all seems to be pretty much solved now. Uh, so it's just been kind of settling back into some routines a little bit. Got my first uh, 5G receptor implanted in my arm on Monday, so uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, reception will get a little bit better there. Uh, get the next one in May, but uh, really, I haven't done a whole lot this week. Um, no, nah, just been kind of hanging out, taking it easy whenever I'm not doing stuff for work so well yeah what about you tj well podcast here podcast there podcast everywhere got a lot of stuff working on behind the scenes fucked around with the website a little bit last night did a little little style tweaks here and there if you guys go on it now uh mess with some font got a movie in i got a nosferatu in venice from severin films and i'm not happy uh i love absolutely love the presentation of the film i love the documentary included about klaus kinski it is hilarious and full of information but the way it was shipped to me i will now present my biggest problem oh, no fuck <laughs> What the boys are looking at is the entire top of the case of Nosferatu in Venice completely gone, completely missing, and you can look directly inside the case. When they shipped it, they shipped it in a very thin cardboard box that was just barely the size of this Blu-ray, and the only thing holding it together is the tape. So, yeah. Shout out to uh, the seller that I bought this on, well, bought this from. Fuck you, man. Uh, (laughs) I will buy some uh, replacement cases, though. I need to get one for next week's film uh, because it has a blue case and not a black one, and all the Severn cases are black. So, But yeah, uh, we got an announcement from Blue Underground that Dario Argento and George Romero's film Two Evil Eyes is getting a 4K release, and I jumped out of my socks and was screaming from the hilltops. It was quite awesome. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a double dose of awesome right there with uh, those two working together. But I think... uh, I think we should get to talking about De Palma and Dress to Kill. Ooh, I like that. So, I like the idea of that. Let's talk about this week's film, which is 1980's Dress to Kill. Brian De Palma invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. Dressed to Kill. 
Doctor, I am not paranoid. Bobby has threatened me over the phone. She said she was going to hurt me. My patient was slashed to death and my razor's gone. There's all kinds of ways to get killed in this city. If you're looking for it. Dressed to kill. Murder. Made to order. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you, check newspapers for showtimes. Directed by Brian D. Palma, who also did Sisters in 1972, Scarface in 1983, The Untouchables in 1987, and Mission Impossible in 1996. This film was also written by Brian De Palma, who also wrote films such as Greetings in 1968, Phantom of the Paradise in 1974, Blowout in 1981, and Femme Fatale in 2002. Produced by George Lito. Lito? however you want to say that. Cinematographer Ralph DeBode, who also did Saturday Night Fever in 1977, Uncle Buck in 1989, One Good Cop in 1991, and Speaking of Sex in 2001. Music by Pino Donaggio, who did Carrie in 1976, Tourist Trap in 1979. Ooh, tasty. <laughs> Returns to work again with Brian De Palma on Body Double in 1984, on The Barbarians in 1987. Budget, $6.5 million. Starring Michael Caine as Dr. Robert Elliott, who also starred in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure in 1979, The Cider House Rules in 1999, and The Dark Knight 2008 is Alfred. Angie Dickinson as Kate Miller, who also starred in Rio Bravo in 1959, Point Blank in 1960 and Sabrina in 1995. Nancy Allen as Liz Blake, who was married to Brian De Palma from 1979 to 1984, who also starred in Blowout in 1981, the sequel to next week's film Strange Invaders in 1983, and Robocop with Peter Weller in 1987. Keith Gordon as Peter Miller, who you may know him from Jaws 2 in 1978, Christine in 1983, and Back to School in 1983. Six, Dennis Franz is Detective Marino, who's also in Blowout in 1981, Psycho 2 in 1983, and Die Hard in 1990. yippee ki motherfucker. David Margulies, is that right? Mm, looks about right. Margulies? Margulies. As yeah. Dr. Levy from All That Jazz in 1979, Ghostbusters in 1984, and Ace Ventura, Pet Detective in 1994. Ken Baker as Warren Lockman, who was also in See How She Runs in 1978, and Safari 3000 in 1982. Susanna Clem as Betty Luce, who also starred in Beautiful Families in 1964, Love, Italian Style in 1966, and the TV film The Upper Hand in 1993. Brandon McGart as as Cleveland Sam. Christmas Evil in 1980. Yes, that was Santa. If you didn't notice that, Brody. <laughs> no, I didn't yes. actually. The, the World According to Garp in 1982 and Dream Day in 1989. Yeah, the John who who is uh, Cleveland is uh, the Santa from Christmas Evil that falls on his ass. <laughs> a, Did not know that. That's a Gorbar episode. If you guys are pretty damn good. It's a good shit. Brody, take it away. Well, taking a shower, Kate Miller, a middle-aged, sexually frustrated New York City housewife has a rape fantasy while her husband stands at the sink shaving. Later that day, after complaining to her psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Elliott, about her husband's pathetic performance in bed, she meets a strange man at a museum and returns to his apartment where they continue an adulterous encounter that began in the taxi cab. Before she leaves his apartment, she finds papers which certify that the man has a venereal disease. Kate rushes into the elevator but has to return to the apartment when she realizes she's forgotten her wedding ring. When the elevator doors open, she's brutally slashed to death by a tall blonde woman wearing dark sunglasses. Liz Blake, a high-class call girl, is the only witness to the murder and she becomes the prime suspect and the murderer's next target. Liz is rescued from being killed by Kate's son, Peter, who enlists the help of Liz to catch his mother's killer as Detective Marino, who's in charge of the case, is uncooperative 
in the investigation. So this movie won some awards, including New York Film Critics Circle Awards in 1980. Best Film nominated, Best Director, Brian De Palma nominated. Golden Globes, United States of America, 1981. New Star of the Year in a new motion picture, Nancy Allen nominated. Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films, United States of America, 1981. Best Actress, Angie Dickinson, winner, winner, Chicken Dinner. Best Horror Film, nominated, Best Director, Brian De Palma nominated. Best Music, Pino Dinaggio nominated. Brody, let's get physical. Yeah! Okay, so once again, we have a Criterion release from September 8th, 2015, and it features a new restored 4K digital transfer of director Brian De Palma's preferred unrated version, supervised by the director with uncompressed monorial soundtrack on the Blu-ray. There's that word again. I've never heard this word so many times before this. New mm -hmm. conversation with between De Palma and filmmaker Noah Bombach. Bombach. New interviews with actor Nancy Allen, producer George Lido, composer Pino Donaggio, shower scene body double Victoria Lynn Johnson, and poster and poster photographic art director Stephen Sayad. How do you say that, Nick? Sayadian. Sayadian. The Making of Dress to Kill, a 2001 documentary. New profile of cinematographer Ralph Bode featuring filmmaker Michael Apted. Interview with actor-director Keith Gordon from 2001. Pieces from 2001 about the different versions of the film and the cuts made to avoid an X rating. Gallery of storyboards by De Palma. Trailer, English subtitles for The Death and Heart of Hearing in People Who Have Kids. Plus an essay by critic Michael Korsky. Currently on Amazon for $24.44 or directly from Criterion for $31.96. Region A1. Additional information. Originally, the script was to start off with an image of a man who was nude with a razor shaving himself in the making of Dress to Kill, the documentary. De Palma states, when I was in college once shaving, I started to shave my face, neck, and then I started to think, well, what if I started to shave off my chest hair, leading to my pubic hair? <laughs> well, this is a guy with a straight razor, and he is taking all of the hair off his body with every big close-ups, and then when he gets to his penis, which is a big problem, especially with the transsexuals, thinking of when am I going to get uh, my penectomy and get this thing taken off? So then he suddenly hacks off his penis. That was the beginning of the movie, and I don't know exactly why I got rid of this sequence, but then we had to start the film with our lead actor's problem. Fair enough. On shooting the opening shower scene, Angie Dickerson states that the body double was for anything that we needed it for, especially the shower scene. It was hell. You're in the shower worrying about your hair, makeup and all that stuff. It makes it very difficult. So as much as we were aware of the crew, camera, lights, microphones, we then must forget it all and then just to see what acting's all about. De Palma states, we then got the body double in because why keep Angie in the shower all that time? So we got a girl, myself, directing the girl and the guy caressing her, talking about a laugh track, trying to get her to touch the things she's supposed to touch. And listening to me direct her was a laugh riot. Angie Dickerson also states, I remember he said that I'm going to look at your double and he said, well, pick your double. I said, well, don't make her too good. And then cinematographer Ralph Boda came to me and said, you know what we are doing in there? We're doing beaver shots. <laughs> Talking about beaver shots, Nick. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, upon filming the incredible museum scene, producer George Lido explains, for that scene, we had tried the Metropolitan, the Museum of Modern Arts, 
uh, the Brooklyn. We couldn't find the museum. So Brian and I are from Philadelphia, to which Brian said, well, how about Philadelphia? I said, oh my God, we have to travel all the way to Philly. He said, well, George, what else are we going to do? I said, well, if I tell the people at the studio that we are going to Philadelphia, they're going to have a fit. So he says, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, we are going to go there, but we're not going to tell them. <laughs> Good way to deal with it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Brian De Palma is somewhat of a perfectionist when it comes to pre-production for his films. This includes having a full wall in his apartment for the whole movie storyboarded <laughs> top to bottom. <laughs> Brian talks about the pre-production for the museum scene. By the time you shoot the movie, you've seen this sequence a hundred times in your head. You've seen it every visual, uh, visual possible possibility and you know the way the sequence works is that they have to have a visual idea. So with Angie, we just worked with the whole emotional line of that scene and I basically shot all of her coverage and had to deal with everything that she saw basically. That's what makes the sequence great, the combination of her face and the point of view shots. I love that fucking scene so much. Oh, it's a fan-fucking-tastic <laughs> scene. It is really good. I like that they uh, they mentioned his uh, storyboarded apartment because uh, I, I noticed, I don't think I put it in the notes, but I did notice whenever I was doing some of my research that uh, the apartment that Kate Miller goes to with the uh, random guy that she meets in the uh, the taxi uh, was actually the upstairs apartment directly above Brian De Palma's apartment at the time. So he was happy because he knew the layout already. So he knew how to get the right Can shot. we say that this is the most well shot film we've covered so far? I can agree with I, that. I can agree with that. And that's all due to that fucking museum shot. Uh-huh. I think Argento is a close second with Bird, but this is just fucking next level. Those uh, split screen sequences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. those chubbed me up. Oh. On the relationship of Nancy Allen and De Palma at the time of filming, uh, Nancy states, at the time of the movie, I was married to Brian. Uh, he was beginning to write it, and he would read me these scenes that he had written to which I really loved. He said, great, because that's going to be your part. I really had no idea or clue before that he was writing that role for me and mine. <laughs> Uh, Dennis Franz on becoming the detective for the role of obviously Franz in the film. I had begun to research policemen in general when I was doing theatre work in Chicago. I would just observe them all the time and I would pick up certain mannerisms that they had like wearing leather jackets and gold chains, which at the time was pretty stock standard. Uh, Keith Gordon, who plays Peter in the film, yeah. talking about Michael Caine dressing up as the killer. Physically, Michael Caine only put on the woman's clothing once and that's in the last sequence. All of the other times, it's this actress named uh, Susanna Clem, who was either playing Michael Caine as a woman or playing the cop who was following, which is one of those disturbing realities of a Brian De Palma film. Not only is he pretending to be someone else, but you've got a man dressing up as a woman, but then you have a different woman playing him dressing up as a woman. It's like Tropic Thunder. <laughs> De Palma <laughs> operates on more levels than we'll ever understand. I swear. Um, I will have to say, uh, just... I don't know if you guys have it in your notes. Did you guys notice that we get two point of views of the glove getting picked up. Uh, um, I actually did not notice that we got the two different so we POVs. See, we, see, we see the shot of him, her picking up the glove, like the actual shot of the hand. And mm -hmm. then we also see a shot from her angle and you can see him, her in the background, reach down and pick it up. Yes. yes. Oh, oh yeah. That. Yeah. Okay. I was going to mention that later, actually, when we do our favorite scenes and shit. Um, ah. yeah, that was so, such a fucking cool scene. Um, God, every shot in that museum was so good. Brian discussing the nightmare scene. Um, the nightmare with the nerve and the white shoes. I used to work on an accident ward in Philadelphia. So all of those nurses I worked with actually stuck into my subconscious 
quite strongly. It just started with setting up the transactional who wears women's clothes to escape the nuthouse, and then you put all of the logic together to how your dream would work. Fucking a. So yeah, pretty pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, I saw. Um, so yeah, one of the one of the things that I found um, as well, just kind of with with this, was that uh, one of the original points of inspiration I think that, that went into helping him with uh, writing this uh, was whenever uh, Brian De Palma was younger. Apparently, his mother had actually uh, given him some recording equipment and urged him to follow his father in an attempt to record him cheating on his mother with another woman, uh, which kind of helped lead over to the uh, uh, sort of aspect near the beginning of it with kind of like the sexual frustration uh, as well um, was uh, just one of the things that I kind of found, which that's just a real nice thing to do to your kid. You know, hey, uh, go try to record your dad cheating on me. He actually did it. It's a lot of these scenes. I watched the De Palma documentary prior to doing this podcast. And he actually talked about lifting those exact scenes of recording his father, but he took it a step further. I think he actually went in and confronted his father and was like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you ruining my family? Stop doing this right fucking now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't see that far, but yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't fucking blame him. <laughs> I probably do the same damn thing. Yeah. He um, said his dad's office was like right down the road from him. So like if he, he started getting suspicious, so he's like, fuck it. So a lot of these scenes of like this kid spying on people was lifted directly from the Palma's uh, lifestyle growing up. Yeah, I mean, it definitely shows that there's like a personal touch to it. Um, De Palma even admits it himself that he, uh, when he was in college, he used to follow women around. I think that's a hobby. It's a De Palma hobby, watching women. <laughs> I can see it. Because I mean, there's even some shots like that in like the untouchables and stuff later on. There's um, there's a lot of uh, peeping Tom stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, another thing that I found, Angie Dickinson's body double, uh, Victoria Johnson, as we mentioned earlier for that opening shower scene. I got this one uh, for you, TJ, yes. uh, since you were watching this not too long ago. She had previously appeared as Gail in the 1976 yep. film Grizzly. She also appeared in a single episode of the Dukes of Hazard as Lori May. Uh, and I found out that she ended up actually volunteering to not be credited as Dickinson's body double for the scene. Just kind of came in, did it, didn't really expect to do credit, dyed her hair blonde because she's actually got red hair. Uh, did a whole lot of work for this and just didn't take any credit for it. I will have to say, um, after a viewing of Grizzly 2, after its recent release with uh, it finally being finished, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It is bad yeah. insane. And the final fight between like the people and the bear at the rock concert and the bear is just oh my lord it is insane <laughs> and every anybody needs to watch it and just the opening scene with george clooney laura dern and charlie sheen getting mauled to death is cool enough and then it's just followed up by woodstock and a giant bear and it's awesome what the fuck charlie sheen and george clooney's in this film yeah grizzly too they're at the oh, beginning shit. it's like one of their first films they get fucking murked it's awesome <laughs> that's interesting to see how many like very like A-list actors out there started their career in horror. Yeah. It's yeah. really strange. You get to see like Charlie run from a bear. It's really fucking rad. It's funny. <laughs> like all the bear, all the shots of the bear, like killing people is the same shot of the bear, like <laughs> just used over and over again. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> was, was this before or after Ferris Bueller's day off when Charlie Sheen made his little appearance as the bad boy in the police station? Good question. I'll have to look. Like, I don't know when this was initially shot. Uh, huh. Future That's episode. We will talk about Grizzly. Yes. We should, we should absolutely do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there's many uh, comparisons, kind of references, um, direct references a lot of the time, and some contrasts uh, between this and another little movie you may have heard of uh, called Psycho. Yes. Um, 
so in, up to and including the the major character in a, in a major draw of the movie angie Dickens, uh angie dickinson in this case and you know of course janet lee uh in psycho being killed off early into the film uh so i believe in the early uh sort of promotional material for this angie dickinson was kind of put uh up in kind of the front row and, and center for it a little bit uh she was a big draw she was on what it was police woman i believe was the tv show she was the star of before this um she got recognized apparently a lot during the shooting as well especially during the taxi scene and apparently there were fans of her who saw it and went you go police woman <laughs> for that scene they saw it getting filmed on the streets um but yeah so that their their character is getting killed early into the film uh angie dickinson actually only has about maybe 30 minutes of screen time for this whole movie uh and then sort of the contrasts uh the villains of psycho you know a quiet young man and his mother uh, are the protagonists uh, of this film at least and then the the hero in psycho the psychiatrist that comes in and stops norman bates at the end and this one is the villain and possesses a lot of those character traits similar to norman bates the cross-dressing with serial killing all of that so um i believe it was mentioned i, I believe Bama said as well that he, he took a lot of inspiration from psycho for this and yeah. then just kind of flipped it every like single the palma film is hitchcockian in nature I, he, yeah he has stated that the only two hitchcockian hitchcock films that he thinks are worth a damn well not really worth a damn but he thinks are like the, the absolute cinematic masterpieces are Vertigo and Psycho. So a lot of his work are based on those two things. And he's like, people want to talk about the birds in his later work, but he's like, that's nothing compared to Vertigo and Psycho. Oh, yeah. So I think Vertigo and Rope might be my two favorite Hitchcock movies of all time. So I get, I get what he's saying about Vertigo. I agree that movie's a masterpiece. Yeah. Like, it's fantastic. I do like birds, um, though. So I, I can't fully agree with them, but like, I, I do understand, like, those films are on, on a whole nother level. And I think that, like, watch watch a De Palma film. You'll notice the similarities no matter mm-hmm. what you're watching. Oh, yeah. Even in, even in Carrie, even his work on Carrie and everything. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, Actor Keith Gordon uh, in this that played uh, Peter Miller. So he actually apparently learned a lot about his filmmaking process uh, while he was on the set for this because he had asked De Palma kind of early on in the production if he could shadow him around throughout all of his directorial process and kind of learn uh, what he could. Uh, And apparently Brian told him yes. And so he let him uh, just kind of shadow him around and just kind of watch how he worked, um, which apparently was just relatively distant. I believe Michael Caine said that uh, while he's a great director, he was just sort of lacked showing really any emotion uh, <laughs> to the actors or anything uh, during the, the process of it. But um, yeah, so so Keith actually later went on uh, to become a pretty successful TV director in his own right. Uh, he directed episodes of House, Dexter, Better Call Saul, the new Fargo TV show, and Homeland as well. Um, and then, yeah, uh, so I mentioned this earlier. Uh, I did have some bits about the, the original X rating. Uh, so yeah, the MPAA uh, did originally rate this movie uh an x yes fuck him um <laughs> which uh De Palma did fight off uh he was able to get it dropped to the r rating for the u.s release of the film uh, they cut about 30 seconds of footage uh from that opening shower scene apparently a lot of it was just close-ups on uh, some slow-mo shots so they ended up cutting about 30 seconds of that uh they cut a close-up shot of a more hardcore throat slit in the elevator scene uh that had a lot more blood and a lot more effect to it as well uh and then there was more explicit dialogue uh, between liz and elliot during their scene uh, where she tries uh distracting him in his study at home uh and then in the unrated cut that we mentioned earlier these did get re-included so if you want to watch that uh the version that brian de palma himself prefers uh you'll have to watch that 
that physical copy. Um, and then uh, I guess the last thing that I was able to really find uh, that kind of stood out to me. So similar to how so Kate Miller was originally supposed to be played by actor Liv Ullman. Uh, and then they did uh, give it to Kate Miller later on. The role of Dr. Elliot was actually originally supposed to be played by Sean Connery. Uh, and they did pitch the idea to him and he expressed some interest in taking the role. But unable, like ultimately, he was unable to uh, due to some prior commitments that he'd made for other films. However, he and De Palma did eventually work together in The Untouchables later on, which is another film from De Palma that I really, really like. That thing is a masterpiece. He talks about making that in his documentary. I highly recommend watching. Okay. Yeah. I'm definitely going to have to give it a shot or give it a, give it a looky loo because I have not seen the uh, De Palma documentary, but uh, I need to. So, <laughs> okay guys. So let's talk about it. <laughs> Favorite performance. Anyone else want to start us off on that one? <laughs> I can start this one off. Um, I just love Michael Caine. Um, you know, throughout the film, he's just got that charm about him, you know, and he just eats up every scene that he's in, you know. Then then when we find out the twist of the killer, you know, it's it definitely pays off and it, it's all due to the character's chemistry with the other the other characters in the film. Off off that I think to me, it was a little bit predictable for for me to figure out who the killer was. Like I, I sort of thought about it at the start, but I do like how they sort of play with that. They play with you with the um the two serial killers in that sense, like the the policeman and Michael Caine. But yeah, as, as I say, like Michael Caine is just a powerhouse in every film that he's in. I think and. Um, yeah, he definitely drove this film home for me. As I said, with that big reveal at the end, it was uh, pretty sinister. Yeah, it was really well done. Uh, his performance was extremely good in this. You are right. He's a complete powerhouse and like everything you put him in. Um, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is another good example of that as well. Um, but yeah, I think you are, are right about the the predictability a little bit of it him being, him being the killer in the end, I think. I think I kinda... uh, it wasn't like that when the movie came out. Or oh, I'm sure. After. I think it's just because yeah. of the legacy of the movie. And I just think that because you guys know enough about cinema that it's kind of, yeah. Oh, for sure. If I had just walked back, like if I'd walked into a theater and watched this in 1980, I would have been just a shock. I, I can tell you else. that my fiance watched it with me and it was effective on her the way it was back when OG released because she came into it with a completely fresh and open like you know approach to it so she, she was pleasantly shocked at the huh. reveal at the end nice well, yeah and and uh, the other thing for me was the fact that like I was like, oh, okay, Michael Caine's a killer. But then when we saw the second person, I'm thinking, wait, there's two fucking killers? Yep. Like, it sort of threw me off. And then I was like, oh, it just adds another layer to that chemistry build. And, and I really liked it. It wasn't just the fact that he was the trans, transgender um, fucking killer, but it just it just sort of threw you off and then it brought you back to reality. I, I really liked how they mm -hmm. did that. Yeah, it reminded me of the uh, the bird with the crystal plumage a little bit as well, the way that with the throw off and the red herrings and all of that. It was it was really well crafted. Yeah. Um, I was just great I, I think my favorite i'm probably gonna have to go with nancy allen as liz liz as a character was just super fun to watch she was super grounded didn't really make very many just like dumb decisions or anything um plus she just didn't take shit the entire time i don't know she was just a fun character to watch um and it just when it was kind of getting towards the end that uh that dream sequence that fake out dream sequence of her getting attacks uh actually did get me because i was genuinely yeah. watching the build up to that and i was like don't fuck it don't kill Liz. 
don't do it. And then she died and I was mad. And then when it was a dream, sequence, I actually was genuinely for the first time watching a movie in the longest time. I was actually relieved that it was a dream sequence that I was watching. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I really liked Liz. I think uh, Nancy Allen did an absolutely fantastic job for it. And I'm glad De Palma wrote that role for her because she it fit her well, I think. And we get a nip slip, too. Yeah, that we, we do. Boobies. <laughs> <laughs> we get a lot of them in this movie. In fact, Paul yeah. not afraid to show some some bush and boob. No, he is not. That. I will have to agree with Slickless Nicholas and mm. uh, say that Nancy Allen did a phenomenal job. I think she was a very strong female character, and the portrayal of that is just oh on point. I think that a close second would have to be Michael Caine, and I love Keith Gordon as well. I'm a big fan of his work in Jaws and Christine, so seeing him in this is just super fucking rad. He's really uh that scene whenever he's like in here working on your Peter all night. I, I got a good giggle. <laughs> I got a good giggle of that. That was pretty good. He was actually pretty good in Dexter as well. He played uh, one of the uh, the serial killers. He would be a good serial killer. I don't partake in a lot of the television shows. So ah, uh, he was he was in Dexter before Dexter turned to shit. So there, <laughs> okay, it's a good sign. <laughs> Favorite set piece. I'm going to start this one off and just say that the doctor's office is because we spent so much time in that fucking place and you really get to understand like the layout, the inside of it and a lot of the action and at least the action that's worth a damn happens inside that office. So like when we when we get to see awesome exteriors, we get to see it from multiple angles and then mm-hmm. just the inside shots of not only the uh, the doctor's like little like sweet like his office thing there, but like offshoots into other rooms is mm-hmm. the Palma does a really good job of like from their point of view and what they would see so it's really rad i i really like that that uh that set piece i yeah i i you took the words right out of my goddamn mouth um <laughs> what more can i say about it that you haven't already said uh i like the lighting i re- I, I really I really enjoy the light, that that blue lighting. Uh, and, you know, you got that really harsh, dark shadow play to reveal the killer in lightning flashes. I thought it was just very atmospheric. And I eat that shit up for breakfast any day of the week. So, yeah, that that was mine, hands down, by far. Um, I don't think I can offer much more because I think for the first time on the show, all three of us have picked the exact same <laughs> location for favorite set piece. Um, yeah, no, that, uh, like Brody said, the lighting, uh, just the contrast in it. I think the camera work and the cinematography for this uh, really helps play into it because it really does make that space sort of come alive, I feel like. Um, I do like the guy's be... apartment too. I think I, we should also mention that. Yeah. yeah. That guy's apartment is pretty fucking cool. I love how he has like that desk that overlooks his whole fucking living room. Yeah. Power move. That's oh, yeah. Power I am move. the king of my domain. Yeah. <laughs> and then his awesome little clock. And then he has like, yeah, it's just the whole layout of that guy's apartment just screams awesome. Mm-hmm. But then again, yep. he probably brings a lot of ladies there, hence the gonorrhea. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's the power move. <laughs> the big bet. Yeah. He's got to establish some, got to establish it somewhere in the long line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And if uh, any of you ever make it uh, over to New York City for any reason, if you look at the IMDb page for this movie and you go to the trivia section, you will find the address uh, where they where they filmed the scenes for Dr. Elliot's uh, his his practice. Yeah. Brody and I will be taking photos in front of that someday with a bike. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will bring an overcoat and a wig so Brody can look extra cute. 
<laughs> it won't be Michael Kane, it'll be Brody Kane. Yeah. Playing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking A. Favorite scene slash shot. Well, well. Steady Camp City, baby. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like um, I think it's very beautiful visually, um, and this also whole movie in terms of it's just like, oh yeah, oh you wanna you wanna be marvelled for like the next what is it almost two hours? Um, hour, yeah, hour? I think the movie's about hour forty five minutes or something like that. Yeah, uh, De Palma does not suck on keeping you visually entertained. He is fucking awesome. Ready? Yeah, he, def- yeah, yeah. Like in terms of directing that scene, I, I think um, those from the from those various point of view shots um, and the characters' emotions, it, it's a hard thing to play with, you know. Especially uh, not to give away certain spoilers throughout the film, and like as we discussed earlier in our notes, like the Palma spent hours on preparing for this scene, and it delivers in every way. But also got to mention, um, like after the interior of the museum scene we're outside in the exterior as we were talking about earlier i really love that pan from right to left insane and as we, he does it twice. oh yes he does it twice yeah. right y- yes yeah. yes he does and it, and it does show if you go back and watch it a second time it pans from her with the glove and then it pans in the middle the middle character is our killer yes. and then to it pans to the taxi it's a cool little fucking thing but I love how he how he does. It's like, how did I miss that? You know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but also, I, it was really hard for me because my other favorite scene was, um, it, it's it's just before the nightmare sequence, and it's between Nancy Allen's character and um, oh fuck, what was his name? We were just talking Peter? about him. Yes, yes. They're sitting at the restaurant, and um, oh yeah, you know, there's there's so much so much room in the camera shot like they're not in the middle of the shot they're placed to the far right and you think something's going to happen in but what yeah you know, he does it on purpose he talks about yeah, that yeah so yeah. tense man it's just so uncomfortable this part like ah because then when we cut to her point of view didn't we talk about that this the- week on like a off screen like we talked about uh building suspense by by uh using wide shots we talked about a scene in psycho mm-hmm. 2 brody yes yeah yeah, yeah. we'll talking about that uh, a couple of nights ago and you were asking me like what i really liked about the film and i was like oh i really love those how he puts the camera to the far left and to the far right and creates all this room behind to reveal nothing you're mm-hmm. expecting something just as as you said it just creates that fear and tension i really liked i was i was expecting Michael Caine to be sitting behind one of them and just turn. I feel like that's like a Hitchcock thing, right? It is actually. I was just about to say. Uh, so Hitchcock is uh, one of his like more famous, um, I guess, sort of demonstrations. Or there's, there's two directors that are in the Hitchcockian film. style that are still active, and that's active alive. Argento and De Palma are the two ones mm-hmm. that hardcore stick to that style. Nobody else really does that. Yeah, nobody. Because I, I think it was, uh, if I remember correctly, how he, how Hitchcock had explained it was. You have a scene. Two people are sitting at a table having a conversation. Obviously, there's no real tension. It's just two people sitting at a table having a conversation. You pan out to reveal that there is a bomb under the table. It feels like that, like neither of them know it's there, but the audience does. And it's it's that, except the bomb is hidden and you don't even know if it's there. It's just hinted at because it was seen earlier. There's foreshadowing to it. So it's it's the bomb under the table without a bomb being under the table. Yep. Is it fair to say that Lee Winnell used this in The Invisible Man? I mean, he does a lot of revealing shots to nothing to make you feel like the invisible man's there like in in a room like he'll pan across to the corner of the room yep. and there's nothing there mm-hmm. obviously but you it, it's all up in your mind to reveal what's actually there i think yeah that's that's a good if you haven't seen it also it. i just want oh, to mention real quick guys uh 
I don't know if you noticed it, but the car chase has a severe lack of car. That's because Brian De Palma hates car filming car chases. He thinks they're boring <laughs> as fuck. So most of the car chase is dialogue. <laughs> if you didn't notice. Oh, man. <laughs> man, callback. Imagine if he was the one tasked with uh, directing Crash. <laughs> Unless he absolutely has to. He's just like, what are ways we can make this visually appealing and still tell a story without relying on... <laughs> yeah. Mr. De Palma, we have a really nice script in front of us and we'd like to pitch it to you. Mad Max Fury Road Part 2. Would you like to participate in this? <laughs> uh, it would be the most personal <laughs> dialogue heavy Mad Max film, I think. <laughs> and, and it would still probably be really fucking good, too. That's It'd be just thing. a lot of Aussies swearing and carrying on like pork chops. That's about it. I'd watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I said my favorite. Uh, I don't think I said mine either. Okay, keep going. Um, I guess I'll do mine. Mine was definitely the murder in the elevator. Yeah. Uh, the use of the mirrors and everything for that, for that shot, uh, and just the tension of her hand and the razor coming down on it and oh, everything. Yes. I love that. It's beautiful. I love shots that like it can incorporate a mirror like that. I don't know why, but like Oculus was fucking fantastic for that. Um, like the movie's not a ten out of ten, but it's a, it's a pretty good one. But all the shots, the cinematography for Oculus was great. And um, so yeah, just with when scenes where you could pull that kind of thing off, and especially just with the tension in the elevator, um, which would have been so much cooler if De Palma had had his way, and we got the the close up throat slit and all the extra blood and everything would have just made it a chef's kiss. But uh, <laughs> he's not Argento, yeah. okay? I know. I I know, but uh, but yeah, no, I, I'll have to go with the um, the build up to the elevator scene, the murder, and then the the subsequent framing of of Liz afterwards, um, where you get you know the maid uh, only seeing you know dead body in elevator and her with a razor, yeah, and understandably being like, oh shit, she just killed somebody. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I, I really like that one. What about you, TJ? I would have to agree with you because I think it's fantastic. But I have some honorable mentions. The other one will have to be the little dialogue in a uh, dialogue swap between what is it? Elliot and Liz about oh, yeah. while she's taking her clothes off. And we see those shots of him looking in the mirror. And then whenever she leaves, we see him smiling. I think that is just fantastic. And it's creepy mm -hmm. as fuck. And then we see him kind of slowly start changing when she leaves the room. And that's just also rad as fuck uh it's it's just a lot of tension built up in there not as not as good as napalma's psycho scene which is that elevator scene but it's still pretty fucking good that's fair yeah, yeah. favorite effect slash death yeah kate miller's elevator death scene i mean <laughs> it's an uneasy watch but yeah beautifully shot at the same time and the one thing i really loved about that is the blocking of that scene in itself it's fucking paced extremely well and it's, and it's as we just spoke about due to little things like the reflections of the killer in the mirror you know um when she reaches in and the knife is about to come down like it's all all pretty intense and i was actually waiting to feel that you know like dealing oh, with glass yeah. I, I was waiting to feel mm -hmm. that fucking slice up your hand so any use of a straight razor in Italian cinema or even this film is just cringeworthy. I think more so mm. than any other weapon, just because of how brutal, just the visually it is, and just ah. Uh, yeah, no, that uh, her hand getting sliced lengthwise even, uh, like that. Oh God. <laughs> Argento uses uh, razors like that in Stendhal Syndrome, pressed up against the face, like he does with the uh, razor. It's it's intense. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck that. Uh, I will give a I will give a shout out to the the nurse getting strangled at the end. 
when Elliot is that escaping is from the mineral super effective. Holy yeah. fuck. I will give absolute props to that scene. That was intense. It was very well done. Sarah's like, is he going to rape her? And I was like, no, <laughs> not going to rape him. I think that like that thought doesn't exist because he gets aroused and then it's like, no, I got to put the clothes on. Yeah. That's what happened. He got aroused and put the clothes on. <laughs> 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 no, De Palma only has like rape in his uh, war movies, right? Uh, oh, yeah. No, that's right. Because I mentioned, yeah, Casualties of War. And then um, Redacted. That is well. so hard to watch. So is Redacted. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Do you know that he has- Actually took care of that girl in Redacted. After, oh, really? After that movie was filmed, uh, her whole family kind of was like, fuck you because of her faith, because it showed her getting raped and on screen. So De Palma like paid for her to come out to America and go through acting school and become an actual actress and take care of herself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do on him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they briefly talk about it. Is that, is that in the, uh, the documentary? documentary? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. They talk well, about yeah. these two war movies and how it's literally like he he makes them just to make a point and just to like say mm-hmm. something like this is bullshit and I don't agree with it. Here's movies about it. It's how fucked up it is. Yeah. <laughs> He's fucking good at him. Again, like I said, fucking good movie. Yeah. Casualties of War. Michael J. Fox is. Mwah. Oh, yeah. Even Sean Penn. Yeah, Sean I was Penn. about to say. Even John C. fucking Riley's really good in that one, yeah. too. Like, the whole cast is great in that movie. Uh, Gotta shake like, and bake. <laughs> My favorite effect oh. slash death. That's, yeah, I'll have to, the elevator kill and then the, the kill at the end as well. Which is too cool. Thoughts on story? Good little murder mystery. And it probably has one of the greatest twists in cinema, yeah. especially for back in its time. That, I was about to say. Double um, twists, technically, because that, yeah. that whole ending sequence is just a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I love, man. I'm, I'm I, just saying, I love the whole concept of nightmare killings like that. I just think it's mm. rad. Rubber reality scenes get me chubbed up. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I agree with Brody. It definitely has one of the most effective uh, twists at the end that I have seen, and definitely yes. with the subject matter, it would be controversial today, let alone 1980. But this just doesn't apply to anything modern going on. This is talking about somebody who has a mental disorder who one of their one of their identities and their mental disorder is male. The other one is female, a murderer. And it is yeah. constantly fighting with each other. Like to the point, like he even talks about like at the beginning that he originally came to him as Bobby mm-hmm. and then later came to him as the doctor and was like, hey, Bobby's sick. Like mm-hmm. Bobby's doing this like a completely different person. And that in and of itself is crazy. Uh, yeah, because I mean, it Right then and there, while they're talking on the stairs, you see the doctor he's talking to go, oh, shit, he completely split. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, fuck, Bobby's on his own. Okay, we got to take care of this. Yeah. Like, I, uh, It's just so well done. It is. <laughs> the story is so fucking rad. And I think this this probably portrays that type of scenario the best. I, I, I know Terror Train kind of is unapologetic about it, but like this one's a little bit more, more, mm-hmm. uh, Let's say, uh, ex- what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it explores the subject matter more and it explains it more within the context of the story. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the undertones of that psychological uh, human persona yeah. in a sense. Where, and like, that really lays it out for you. Yeah. Where like films like Terror Train, they're like, why'd they kill him? Because they're a confused transsexual. Like, you know what I mean? That's like- 
there's this film, there's that. There's one, like, this made a point to, like, explain it out. And I think that that's just a whole nother level compared to other films Mm -hmm. that will go later. Yeah, I I definitely think a lot of the criticism that I saw that this movie even got for the time in 1980, because there were a lot of groups that were like, this is, this is, you know, portraying these people in a bad light kind of thing. That criticism, I believe, would have more applied to Terror Train. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That it just didn't, it's... Yeah, because again, I think it's more of a the um, is just getting personality lost in translation. Split. That's all it is, and yeah, I, I'm I believe so, and because I, I I also saw that a lot of uh, groups at the time uh, believed that it was a very misogynistic movie, and I was like, yeah. I don't know, Liz Context Liz's is character deep. is just too yeah. good, like she's just too well well done, um, and I think it, okay. may, it even did a little bit better what, of a. What's the name of this show? <laughs> Right. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, no, I was like, I'm agreeing. I'm just saying, like, the criticism that I saw is explaining why I thought, you know, I think it's misdirected. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. But but that's yeah. the whole point. If there wasn't criticism, we wouldn't be talking about it on the show, right? So, right. exactly. Yeah, I'm skippy. Yeah, and I think it even did a better job of dealing with the, the alternate personality than, like, Primal Fear. Okay, like Ed Norton's character in Primal Fear. Transition into the impacts and takeaways. Because, again, mm-hmm. we're talking about the concept and like the whole story of transsexuals as the the killer in these films. So like apparently and clearly it has impacted cinema and other films that came after it as using that type of character in a, in that same type of role, but just mm-hmm. not as let's say as well thought out. Right, Brody. Impact takeaways. Yeah, like as we, I, I really took away from it that um, it's got that really Doctor Jackal and Mister Hyde, you know, subject matter about it. Uh, you take that and you bring it into a modern day, a um, well, with modern day themes, um, it holds up today, especially you know, like with uh, a lot of that stuff happening even today. Um, a lot of people coming out. Um, it, it's just definitely one of De Palma's more intriguing films. Um, it was. As I said to TJ, I I was a bit hit and miss with the first viewing, but watching it again and understanding a bit more of the themes and tones, I think it all depended on what mood I was in at the time as well. I fucking really enjoyed it, and I've got to appreciate the Palmer's mind um, to actually dwell into this uh, subject matter and actually come out yeah swinging like this film's fucking fantastic, and I'd definitely watch it again every day of the week. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it it's definitely a movie that benefits from repeat watchings yes uh i I personally feel that way about most movies that have these sort of large twists at the end like that because you know upon the second viewing you've got the twist you know you're not waiting to see what it is now you're paying more close attention to the build-up the little intricate details how is the how are they getting there like it's no longer because i've we've already i've reached the twist before i've seen the movie before now i get to pay attention to just how they build up to that twist, um, which is I, part of the reason why I actually don't even really mind if a movie gets spoiled for me anymore, because now I'm just going to watch the movie in a different way. I'm still going to fucking watch it. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I, I kind of took away similar things and, and like split more recently because, again, this uh, the impact of this movie cannot be understated. I think one of the quotes that I saw New York Magazine said that uh, at the time when they reviewed it, when it came out, that this is the first great American movie of the 80s was exactly what they called it. Fucking A. Yeah, I think the cult uh, impact that it had later on, I think it's truly appreciated more so today than it has ever been. I just think that Brian De Palma, especially some of his earlier works, are severely underappreciated, especially compared to Scarface and Mission Mission Impossible, stuff like that. It's talk about Dress to Kill, talk about Greetings, talk about Blowout, talk about those types of films Mm -hmm. more often. Let's, Let's have more discussions 
about his early work because those are so Hitchcockian and so derivative of that type of work that it can't be ignored. And it really, it sets the bar for filmmaking as a whole for anything that comes after it. You know, Brody and I kind of talked about this earlier this week that he was raised in a time that filmmaking, the, the bar was set so high, especially his friends, Spielberg, Scorsese, all of these motherfuckers, even George Lucas. We're all part of this group that came around at the same time and we're competing with each other literally for who can bring home the most money in the, with a blockbuster. I mean, yeah, I mean, still Spielberg set it up with Jaws, but look what these fuckers do. It was like a, a great competition to who can write the coolest film. And look at it. We we got some awesome films out of that. And the whole world benefited yeah. from it. <laughs> yeah. so. it it's, it's amazing that, that that class of people exists, especially in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Fuck. Yes. Yeah. I just think De Palma doesn't get talked about enough. That's just my opinion. No, I, you, I absolutely agree with you there. I think he's more underrated out of the whole lot of them. Mm -hmm. For the man who directed Scarface, yep. like it's it's fucking Scarface. Like it, it doesn't, he does not get talked about a lot. I th I definitely agree. Like for just the class, the league that he's in. You want to talk about style? That film fucking has style. That has swagger. It has. He fucking talks about Spielberg coming is. on set he with is. him and like just like, hey Spielberg, where should we put cameras for that seat that shootout scene with Al Pacino mm -hmm. with the uh, M16? friend yeah yeah so he had spielberg come up and stand at the top of the steps and point out where he thinks they should put cameras to record some of those uh guys coming in with guns <laughs> that's pretty fucking sick yeah. because they, they were just buddies and he's like he'd come in and be like oh we should put him there there and there like yeah that's a good idea okay action <laughs> <laughs> god how cool would it be to just be like homies with steven right? spielberg <laughs> it's a lot of stuff he talks about like his love with working all these different musicians and stuff that he has for all these films he even got the same guy as uh argento that anino guy who did mm -hmm. bird he got him at one point to do one of his films i can't remember which film he oh. did but yeah he was like over the moon about it <laughs> so let's rate this That's bad awful. boy so this week is uh sex craze serial killers and overcoats <laughs> beautiful <laughs> sexy <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll start off. Um, yeah, I, I think I kind of last night sort of decided this while I was finished up, finishing up writing my notes, going over everything in my head. I think I'm gonna have to go with a four out of five for this one. Okay. Um, definitely just because of the impact that this movie had, uh, how just, I mean, just how good Brian De Palma treated it. Um, I didn't go all the way up to like a five. It's not my favorite Brian De Palma movie. Um, I just think some of his other work just stands out a little bit more to me. Are we going to um, be able to talk about his other work is the question. Mm -hmm. Casualties of war. I, mean, I was about to say, I was like, we could do casualties of war. I, I personally think. We'll discuss it later. Um, yeah. Okay. That's fair. Um, but yeah, no, I'd, I'd say so. Yeah, no, it, it's up there. It, it may just not be at the top of the pack for De Palma for me. So I'm going to go with okay. a four. Fair enough. Brody? Yeah, I was going to give this a, a lower score. Um, but upon second viewing and actually appreciating this film much more, I'm going to have to give it a 4.1. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give it a 4.75, and that is a lights, camera, exploitation score of 4.3 out of five sex-crazed serial killers and over. Cha-cha! <laughs> I think a I could score for fucking yeah. 4.3. Fucking oath. So next week is 1980s Dead Kids, a.k.a. Strange Behavior, and that will conclude season one of Lights, Camera, Exploitation. We will then be taking a little hiatus recording some bonus content and then resuming normal programming for you all. Uh, bonus content will be delicious. I promise you it'll be something mm -hmm. that's a little bit out of our norm, 
The episodes won't be as long. They'll be short little tidbits of awesomeness, and I can't wait to record them. Yeah. Brody, you want to talk about next week's film? Ooh, well, y'all in for a fucking treat, because I'll tell you what. <laughs> we're bringing a, well, was it a USA production company down to uh, Australia slash New Zealand? Sounds about right. And Yeah, so it, it's kind of cool that we get to see um, these, well, Australia and USA uh, production companies get together and create this uh, nice little exploitation film that um, TJ got me onto. So you're in for a treat. It's gonna. It's a fucking fun slash a flick. That's for sure. Yes. Um, sort of, sort of had a seizure there for a bit. So yeah. Um, nah, I'm really excited to do uh, Dead Kids, aka Strange Behavior. It's a very fun film. Yeah, we're gonna need. I will icing. just point out. Oh, I was just about to say that you bastard. Oh, why would you do that to me? <laughs> I'm gonna be watching that whole movie like. Where is it? Where the fuck is it? I don't do well with those, man. And there's a cool little. Uh, well, we will talk about it in our notes next week, but there is a cool little um, behind the scenes bit about that needle. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're in for a treat, as I said. Yeah, it's a fun film. Can't wait to talk about it. Brody and I have uh, really just fallen in love with that film over the last couple of years. It's it's truly something to be marveled at. But I'd say that's it for this episode. Just a friendly reminder that Lights, Camera, Exploitation is part of the Project Louder podcasting network, home to other great podcasts, such as the Big Bad Beetle Bros featuring... Our own Nick Reese. A. <laughs> Box Office Banner, Comics and Kaiju's Fatality, featuring Brody Kane. Ghoulies Unflushed, the official unofficial Ghoulies podcast. Gore More, Jerk the Curtain, Joints and Joysticks, Rabbit Hole, Ranch from the Black Lodge, Somewhat Supernatural, the TG Bowser Power Hour, Two Guys on Friday, Wicked Wednesdays, and Wrestling Ruined. Head on over to ProjectLouder.net, your source for pop culture and so much more. And you can find all of those podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Audible, and anywhere else you listen to audio-only content. This is your host with the motherfucking most, TJ Bowser, signing off. This is your doppelganger, kangabanger, all the way from down under saying, catch you later, amigos. This is Slick Nick saying, don't go anywhere. I'll see you next week. Boom!